Today, I'm recommending seven of my most popular episodes this year. If you are new to my podcast or have not been able to keep up with all of my content, this episode is for you. This episode will give you a taste of what we mean when we say lifestyle medicine. You will learn about nutrition, sleep, building healthy relationships, and finding a support group. Stick around. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast, and I'm your host, Maya Acosta. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life. Let's get started. Friends, I will attend the Podcast Movement Conference here in Dallas this week. While I attend the conference to learn how to improve my show, I want to leave you with a special episode. This year, I have recorded close to 70 episodes under my new brand, Healthy Lifestyle Solutions. I thought it would be a great idea to recommend seven of my most popular interviews this year. We have lots of new listeners. If you are new to my podcast and want an idea of where to start listening, I recommend you listen to this entire episode. You will hear the sound bites of the top seven episodes of this year so far. We will cover topics related to heart disease, GI issues, intuitive eating, diet culture, the importance of a support group, the connection between the brain and the gut, autoimmune disease, building stronger relationships, and surviving breast cancer. Lifestyle medicine is a medical approach that uses evidence-based behavioral interventions to prevent, treat, and in some cases, reverse chronic disease. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine trains and educates health professionals on these lifestyle interventions, also called pillars. They include nutrition, physical activity, stress management, sleep, social support, and reducing the use of risky substances. Every year, health professionals have the opportunity to become board certified in lifestyle medicine. Many go on to begin programs to educate their patients in these modalities. Some change the practices to reflect the use of lifestyle medicine. My guests are trained in lifestyle medicine and will initially share their health stories and how they now support others. So let's get started on the top seven episodes of this year. In number one place, we have Jared and Anita Roussel. Jared is a physician assistant and certified lifestyle medicine professional born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Anita is a nurse with her BSN and certification as an integrative nutrition health coach. Years ago, when Anita's health suffered, they tried to find answers using the traditional route without success. They knew that there must be something that they could do to turn things around. For Anita, this way of living had to be simple, enjoyable, and delicious if she would do it for a lifetime. After digging through the research and learning solid science-backed nutritional principles, she was able to get rid of pain and autoimmune symptoms, lose extra pounds, and regain the energy that she'd been missing for years. So together, they co-founded Power on Plant Society and the podcast to teach women how to heal their pain, fatigue, and chronic health conditions enjoyably with whole plant foods. Let's listen in as Anita shares her story of facing chronic health issues. Ten years ago, we were in the process of adopting our fourth child, 
And she was in China. And I remember just being in tears as a mom looking at Jerry going, how am I going to be able to lift her? Because the pain in my arms, my elbows and my shoulders was so severe. I was crying in the shower, washing my hair because it hurts so badly just to prep, to have the energy to press on my head. My joints were aching so badly. I, I couldn't even realize and fathom how I was going to be able to pick her up and hold her in my arms when we first met. And that was heartbreaking as a mother, thinking about that coming and not being able to do that. And then just homeschooling our other children. We've homeschooled them all the way through. And we now have a daughter who's almost a senior. She's our oldest. And then um, Kate, our youngest, is nine going on. 30. (laughs) So, but she's the one we were in the process of adopting at the time. But so I had the three at home homeschooling them actively, but I say actively. I mean, many days it was from the bed. If I could drag myself to the couch, it was from the couch. That was a good day. Oh yeah. I mean, it was awful. Jared would come home and I'd say, if you have any hope, of getting um, dinner tonight. I'm. You're going to need to pull up a stool for me. She, well, I was thinking she gave the kids. I mean, <laughs> she's like, here, you take the yeah, kids. And, take them. Pull and up then I stool. would have to pull up a stool and she would sit at the stove. Yeah, but you're talking about stress, though. That was stressful. But really, and I don't know, it's been a while since we've done our first podcast episode. So I don't know how much of this we mentioned in there. But the stress really started way before that because I had a job loss that led to us moving. So then we're moving to a different city. Now, granted, it was only a couple hours away, but it's still a move. And then your mother got sick right mm-hmm. after that. And then and she, she passed away. Friend. She unexpectedly had brain cancer. And we had very little. Well, we had actually a couple of months, which was probably pretty good. We just I just think, you know, sometimes when you come into this, you think, I wish I had known then what I oh, know now. Absolutely. Because she would have been so on board with this. But we just didn't know. And that's one of our big things. If you you don't know what you don't know, we say that all the time. So you're in this place and you're desperate to find some answers. And if you're like me, you're going to doctors or PAs or MPs trying to get a name for that thing that's holding you back so that you can hopefully get some medication. But our big thing is we're not against medication at all. It needs to be used at the proper time. We're both, you know, I'm an RN, Jared's a physician assistant. Obviously, we're not against medication. But we know that um, a lot of times things can be dealt with, things that you even think are genetic with what you're eating, what you're putting on your plate and into your mouth or what you're not getting, which is oftentimes just as important. Anita restored her health and is now thriving. Jared and Anita created a program to support women in taking back their health. They talk about the importance of mindset. Just being able to understand that no matter where you where you are in your journey, if you're at a place where you have a diagnosis, there is hope. You can do this. And it's not just about recipes. You need some great recipes. But with the principles that we teach as well as with lifestyle medicine, we start with mindset when we're teaching people. We have seven steps that we lead um, our clients through. And mindset is huge because, first of all, you got to know that you have an opportunity and option. Like we said, you don't know what you don't know. And then there are all these mindset things that we have, like you need extra protein. You're not getting enough protein. You're protein deficient. And we hear that all the time. How do you get your protein? Because every time you go to the store, there are protein bars and protein shakes and protein powders and protein ads. And you just think, I'm not getting enough protein. And then you hear people say stuff like I was in a Whole Foods one time and I heard a guy working there talking to another guy going, don't eat bananas. Like bananas are evil. And this idea of carbs being evil when our bodies were actually created to be fueled on carbs and being able to understand that, like you and I were talking about earlier, before we even started taping, how 
um, you don't have to diet. Like women are constantly bombarded with the idea, especially now we're at the first of the year. Well, if you want to feel better, you need to diet. You got to count calories and keep up with portions and grams and, um, you know, all those things that just drive you nuts. And that's not sustainable. It doesn't work. It causes more stress, which can cause you to get sicker. And then, you know, there's your environment. I mean, the people, places, and things that surround you can set you up for um, struggles or it can set you up for big wins. And then what do you eat and how do you get the right balance of it on your plate? And how do you save time and how do you save money doing it? We call that savvy shopping. And then simple living. Like, how do you make this work with real life situations like dining out, going, out. going to a friend's house or, you know, those kind of things. And then we have a category that we call total health. And that's where the other areas of lifestyle medicine come in. Stress, like stress sleep. Sleep and uh, your relationships with, we talk about with God and with people and um, your career satisfaction, different things like that movement. You know, are you, do you live a sedentary lifestyle or are, do you find a way to move, not just getting into the gym? Cause you know, that's dreaded for a lot of people, but there are a lot of other ways you can move that are fun. And so those are the seven key areas that we focus on. Let's learn about their membership program and their podcast. But basically it's just our membership where we help busy women to learn how to adopt a healthy plant-based lifestyle in a way that's really easy, that works with your busy lifestyle, that actually tastes good. So you can start healing like we talked about. About today so you can do all the things you dream of doing before but you just didn't feel like doing it I remember saying all the time you know I want to do this but I just don't feel like it I mean in my mind out loud that was my those were my words that was my story I just don't feel like it. and I just got tired of not feeling like it and so that's what we're just passionate about helping women to be able to feel good enough to feel great on a regular basis but with the membership we have two sides to it we do have a community it's much like Facebook it's not hosted on Facebook but it's much like it but it's a much cleaner design you don't have all the ads you don't have all the distractions and so that's the community aspect and then we have our platform where all of our videos are housed so that Whenever the videos are hosted in the community, they go down the feed and, and you'll lose them. And so on the platform, we have them where they're all neatly organized and they're searchable. So that way, everything's easy to find. Mm -hmm. And even though it's two different sides, they are linked. So once you get logged into them, uh, but you can bounce back and forth between the two all, really seamlessly. We actually yeah. just started it right about a year ago. It was right at a year, yeah, over a year ago. December 13th, right. 2020. And so we were, just over a year now. We were crazy busy wanting to get episodes out because we had so many people coming to us with questions. What do I do to heal? How do I prevent sickness? Like what's the best way to not get viruses, right? That was a huge question we were all getting. I really enjoyed Joy, Jared, and Anita. And as we wrapped up the conversation, I asked them, what would they change if they could do it all over again? Let's listen in. I really believe if we had it to do, we would have just started much earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's there's always kind of looking back, woulda, shoulda, coulda, but I would have gone all in from the very beginning mm -hmm. and just just gone for it. Right. I mean, we did we did start a little more slowly and that works best for some people. There's not one way that works best for everybody. Sometimes you get overwhelmed and you think I've got to do everything and that doesn't work. And some people are at a place like I was where, you know, once you reach that point in your health, you think I just need to know everything and do it all. And they so they jump in and they are able to do it just because of that motivation. But it can be stressful for some people. But for us, like Jared said, absolutely. Like if I had known 
Um, if I had somebody just to show me, and I think also just getting a mentor, link up with a friend who wants to do whole food plant-based too, and um, bounce ideas off each other. And what resource are you getting? What book are you reading? What podcast are you listening to? And just being able to have that support, get a mentor who can show you, look, first focus on this. Here's some good ways to get started. It's really important. Listen to Maya's podcast, you know, get on a good um, routine of doing that. And some people think I'm so busy. I don't have time. You know how we get Maya so busy, you know, with our just regular schedules. But think of when you can add that in, that it's not something extra, that you're actually using your time better. To listen to the full episode, please visit healthylifestylesolutions.org forward slash 154. That's for episode 154. Coming in in the number two spot is Kuhn Vaisen. He is a vegan health coach from the Netherlands living in Slovenia. He is now using his skills to coach professionals and eco-driven entrepreneurs to make lasting lifestyle changes and live a vibrant vegan life. Let's meet Kuhn. I'm originally from the Netherlands, people can probably pick it up a little bit from the accent. Um, <laughs> currently living in Slovenia for people that are not familiar with that, that's central Europe, just below, basically we're like surrounded by, uh, Austria, Italy, Hungary, really central Europe, very small country, very green, very fortunate to uh, be able to spend my time here. And how I came to this lifestyle has been to years of trial and error. I actually used to work in retail management for almost 10 years, I built myself uh, a career there from literally stocking shelves as a 16-year-old boy to uh, becoming an assistant manager and further. And um, yeah, like as you can imagine, it was a very hectic, stressful, and not always the healthiest lifestyle. I woke up with uh, two cigarettes and a can of Red Bull. And uh, that went on for many years until I had a burnout at the age of, age of 25 and had a good hard look at my life and what I wanted to do different and most of all what I really needed to to do different also so fitness was kind of like my rescue um, but it also soon turned in a very obsessive relation towards how my body looked counting calories very obsessively very restrictive feeling guilty after a night of party and a weekend of, of binging and I just also realized that that wasn't the way how I yeah, how I truly would find health and happiness. So after years of trial and error, I actually came across a podcast of somewhere. I actually hosted a podcast myself with a intuitive eating coach. And I was like, wow, that's actually what I've been practicing for all these years. And I didn't even know it's called intuitive eating. <laughs> and uh, that's when I, when I really found my, my passion and my mission to spread that message further because it was just so related to my own story as well. I asked Kuhn, to tell us why diets do not work. Oh, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I don't think even people realize like how ineffective they are actually and how actually counterproductive they are to begin with, right? Because what diets do is um, it's it, like it depends also on your definition of of what working means, right? So let's let's define that first, maybe. So if you look at it from the perspective of what the main goal is with the diet for the majority of people, it would be weight loss, right? So what we see is that uh, 95% of diets result in weight gain and not weight loss, or at least uh, over a longer period of time. So the far majority of people, the far majority of people, 
that go on a diet actually gain more weight than they initially lose, if they lose weight at all. So even from the perspective of the goal of the diet, which is being marketed, the weight loss part, it is very ineffective. Uh, if you talk about uh, a lot of other things that tend to come with it as a nasty byproduct, uh, like uh, the, the low self-esteem, uh, the body image issues, the uh, lack of uh, self-esteem and, and the, the, the feelings of guilt and shame because of not being able to stick to something or uh, the, the, all the foods that are being demonized as either good or bad and not being able to live up to all of these expectations that diet culture and society has for you. Yeah, then it's pretty effective because it brings a lot of these destructive patterns and thoughts into your life. And it does that very efficiently and very effectively. And it does that so well that by the next time another diet is being promoted, you're going to want to do it again because you feel terrible and you think that that's the only solution for it. Kuhn goes on to explain emotional eating and what the real reason is behind most addictions. That's a very interesting topic and it can obviously be many different reasons, right? This is what you mentioned as well. Like for some people it might be under eating or not eating. And for other people, it might be constantly thinking about eating. Uh, there's many ways, uh, there's many symptoms how your relationship with food can show up in your day-to-day -day life. And one Big reason is because we think that food is going to give us something that we're not being able to give ourselves, right? So it's trying, we're trying to fill a void with food that we're not being able to fill with our life because we might lack meaning, meaningful connections or meaning in life in general, or we might feel that we're not loved enough or not not enough in general or not worthy enough it always stems from these usual deeper underlying issues that people often also not really aware of or try to avoid from being aware of right so food just like a lot of other things like social media like um like drugs like alcohol like cigarettes there's so many examples obviously that we can that we can name in today's society they're just basically a form of distraction and food is, is, is no exception in that, I feel. We learn about emotional resiliency, self-awareness, and limiting beliefs as he supports his clients in developing healthy and sustainable lifestyle changes. What is difficult is to actually challenge, it, challenge those thoughts that you have and challenge those rules and those beliefs that you have around food, because that's really where true the, the liberation from diet culture lies is in breaking free from uh, like how they call it intuitive eating the food police and breaking free from that diet culture mindset. So a lot of these labels that we have, like I always call this the, uh, it's like kind of like the forbidden fruit, right? So if you have always told yourself that chocolate is bad for you or that ice cream is bad for you or whatever food uh, you want to want to fill in there, then it kind of builds up tension it's like that piece of chocolate laying in the cupboard and it's whispering your name and you say to yourself, no, I cannot have it yet. I haven't deserved it yet. I haven't earned it yet. And then, ah, okay, maybe I will just have one piece. And then before you know, you eat the whole bar, right? So it is has a lot to do with that these kind of foods, we've put them on a pedestal and they yeah, are, have become the forbidden fruit. And we all know maybe from 
uh, like when we uh, when we were a bit younger and there was like uh, this guy or this girl that we knew that wasn't really good for us i always like to make this comparison and uh, maybe our parents told you yeah you shouldn't hang out with that person you know it's gonna hurt you you know they're gonna do you wrong but still you did right because it was that yeah like uh, that forbidden fruit that pulls you in and it makes it even more him or her even more attractive and i feel that that's kind of the same thing with food we know oh it's gonna do us bad i like or at least that's the mindset that we often have and because of that we just get lured in even more i like the more we tell ourselves we cannot have something the more we actually want it Make sure to listen to the full episode to learn more about emotional and mental health to heal addictive behaviors. Visit healthylifestylesolutions.org forward slash 152. And that's for episode 152. Coming in at number three, Dr. Monique May, the physician in the kitchen is a board certified licensed family physician with over 20 years of clinical experience. A native New Yorker, she has called Charlotte, North Carolina home for most of the past 23 years. She graduated from the University of North Carolina with a degree in psychology. She obtained her medical degree with honors from Temple University School of Medicine. Dr. May completed her internship and residency in family medicine at Carolina's Medical Center, now Atrium, in Charlotte, North Carolina, where she was named Resident of the Year. A lifelong learner, she completed a Master's of Healthcare Administration at the George Washington University School of Public Health. Dr. May received the Physician of the Year Award in 2019. Let's meet Dr. May. I am Dr. Monique. I am a board-certified family physician known as the physician in the kitchen. And through my online media presence, my books, including my soon-to-be-released cookbook, Doc Fix My Plate, The Physician in the Kitchen's Prescriptions for Your Healthy Meal Makeover, I help busy households enjoy healthy eating without impacting their hectic schedules. It's just been a journey for me. And, um, you know, I went to medical school back in the, in the 1900s. And so we weren't really taught about food is medicine per se. Of course, we knew that certain conditions were linked to diet and so forth, but actually being able to prescribe or recommend medic, you know, foods in a certain way just wasn't part of our curriculum. So this has been a, a real continuing education project for me as well. Actually, I'm, I'm an avid reader. And so I happened upon a book called How Not to Die by Dr. Michael Grieger. And he, in this book, he takes the top, I believe it's 17 conditions that Americans die from, from cancer to heart disease to even infections. And he dissects literally what role our food is playing in that. And it had me hooked. I mean, and the book is pretty thick. It's it's like a Bible. It's it's thick because he's got the research to back it up. You know, everything we do in medicine, as your husband can attest, is evidence-based, right? Um when we were in school, when I was in school, you know, some stuff we just kind of passed down because, well, that's how it's always been done. But, you know, over time, we've really pushed and, and navigated more toward evidence-based medicine. If we do this, do we have the science that says that this will be the outcome or what will be the outcome? And who is it better for? You know, so because so, not everybody responds the same to everything. So, Reading that book with all of the citations and the examples of the research that he had was immensely eye-opening. And so um, 
it just really kind of sparked my interest. And then I started my own vegan, I call it vegan-ish journey. Uh, and I actually, I blog about it on my website, drmoniquemay.com because um, I, I, like I said, I've never been a really big red meat eater, but I still like things like honey, which if you're a strict vegan, you don't eat. Um, and I do like, you know, fish and sometimes some, some chicken. So I haven't made it completely to vegan yet, but the overwhelming majority of my nutrition comes from plant sources. And so along the way, I started writing this blog called Dr. Monique's ABCs, vegan ABCs, my, my favorite food ABCs. And basically each letter is dedicated to whatever food I had recently discovered or was repurposing to make a plant-based version of a traditional food. And so that's what I I really enjoy doing is showing people how to veganize, quote unquote, veganize their favorite foods. Um, and just the discoveries along the way, like aquafaba, you know, the, the liquid in a can of beans that for years I have been pouring down the drain, right? You get your beans, you rinse off that, that water uh, or that juice. Well, you know, chickpeas and, and other white beans, you can actually use that as, a meringue, as an egg white substitute and make a beautiful, luscious meringue with it. So just things like that have been just so, it brings out the food geek in me. And so I've just feel, you know, impassioned about it and want to share other share this with other people. Like, hey, did you know about this? And so that's kind of how it all came together. Dr. May speaks to us about heart health and what we can do to reduce our risk for heart disease. Oh my goodness, this is so timely because as you mentioned, February is American Heart Month and it's really set aside to raise our attention and our awareness to the fact that coronary, coronary artery disease is the number one killer in this country. And that may be surprising to some people. It's not cancer, you know, it's not other things. It is heart disease. And this past February, excuse me, this past Friday was Go Red for Women Day. And that was meant to, again, increase awareness that one out of three women will die from heart disease. And what's even more concerning or alarming is that women don't always have the same symptoms as men do. You know, men, we, we think of the classic, oh, I feel like there's an elephant sitting on my chest. I'm sweaty. I'm nauseous. The pain is going up into my jaw. Those are all classic textbook symptoms that literally no doctor should miss. But women don't always have those. And I, I can remember very vividly from my own practice admitting two women or sending two women to the ER from my office because they thought they were having indigestion. And so they came to see me instead of going to the to the ER. So uh, so to to answer you know your question, it kind of goes back to the those that color, the, all those colorful foods that that I was um, encouraging people to eat, specifically red foods. And it's, it's so funny that it happens to be red. You know, we think of, you know, February is, is Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is month, is month, this coming Monday. Um, we're talking about the heart. So all this red stuff. And it just so happens that the foods that are good for your heart happen to be red. Things like red bell pepper, cranberries, tart cherries, beets, um, red onions, strawberries, raspberries, watermelon. I mean, the list goes on and on. And they all contain, again, these phytonutrients, these plant chemicals that are antioxidants. They are, uh, they contain fiber. They contain 
chemicals that make your body um, increase the production of nitric oxide, which your husband, I know, is very familiar with. Uh, it helps to, that, that chemical helps blood vessels dilate or relax. And it's, it's kind of the secret ingredient in medicines like Viagra. So what it, because what we know about heart disease, you're, let me get, let me answer the question about, you know, what, what causes heart disease? We know now that it's actually a disease of the, of the endothelium, which is the lining of the blood vessels in the heart and throughout the body. And so the things that can increase the risk for developing plaque, you now think of your heart arteries as pipes. Well, what happens to the pipes in your house if hair gets clogged in there, grease gets clogged in there? You know, you start off with a, a brand new pipe that's a nice, you know, you can see right through it. Over years in your house, you know, you're putting all kinds of stuff down your drains. Those pipes get clogged, hair and grease and whatever else is in there. So what happens? The, the You have a slow drain, right? You take a bath, you get out, that water is taking forever to get out of the tub, go out of the tub. That's what's happening in your heart and those blood vessels. So we have medicines that can go in and kind of help reduce that or procedures that can be done to go in and physically remove that or sneds can be put in to just open up those those pipes and let the blood flow back through there. But things that increase your risk for having that, the things that you, you know, we, we look at risk factors as far as what you can control and what you can't control. Obviously your age, right? The older you get, the risk for heart disease may go up. Family history. You can't control your genetics, right? If it runs in your family, if all the men in your family have heart attacks in their 40s, not much you can do about that risk factor. But then you certainly want to talk to your doctor about the other risk factors that you can control. Race. We know that certain ethnic groups have higher rates of heart disease, African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, Native Americans. So those are things that you can't eat. You can't change. And then um, uh, sometimes even environmental things can play a role. So the things that you can change, the risk factors that you can change, again, diet, exercise level, whether or not you smoke, how much um, alcohol you drink, what type of recreational drugs you use, all these kinds of things, your stress levels, all of these things are in the column that you as an individual can control. And that's where we try to make the, the most impact. I encourage people to be advocates for themselves and I encourage them to be the expert for themselves. Listen to the rest of the episode to learn about Dr. May's books and programs. She supports her community in making a transition towards eating more plant-based foods. To listen to the full episode, please visit healthylifestylesolutions.org forward slash 162. That's for episode 162. Coming in at number four, Dr. Melissa Mandela is triple board certified in family medicine, lifestyle medicine, and primary care psychiatry. She serves as faculty at Loma Linda University Preventative Lifestyle Medicine Department, a blue zone for longevity. She currently sits on the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine Board of Directors and is a diplomat of lifestyle medicine. She planted seeds of change in the community through lecturing at local medical school, VetchFest, and virtual summits. Dr. Mandela's health problems began in high school and followed her for years. Let's listen in. You know, I was really active. Um, I loved to exercise. I loved to dance. I was a cheerleader. Um, and I also loved food. I was a big foodie. Um, and so I had a really, I would say, 
um, with food and health, I thought it was very, very important. At the same time, you know, when you're a teenager, you just want to eat everything. And then I would, <laughs> funny stories are, is like I would cheerlead with other, you know, football, basketball players, and we would just have contests. And little did I know was I was just having tons of symptoms. Like I would get the reflux, the bloating the sensation. Of course, I was eating tons of pizza and hot dogs and chips and hot Cheetos and cup of noodles, the things that I see as a doctor now that are just uh, cocktails for constipation, to be honest. <laughs> Little kids um, aren't able to have stools um, for weeks. Um, and same thing with adults um, for days, and that's really unhealthy. Um, as a teenager, I saw my symptoms evolve. Um, not only did I have that issue, I noticed um, I had um, bouts of loose stools. And, you know, when in your 20s, no one really likes to talk about their health. <laughs> no one, it's not a hot topic. Um, you you just enjoy life. And uh, about that time, I I just noticed every time I would eat certain foods, um, my stomach would ache. Um, I wasn't able to handle some of the regular foods that I used to eat. And I, I really just thought, well, it's just the same thing, right? Um, just the spiciness. That's all. I just need to cut down the spiciness. And you know what? That worked maybe just a little bit, maybe for a couple days, a few weeks. But then I knew that there was something more and more because my symptoms just kept evolving in my 20s to my 30s where I I noticed that it was just more loose stools um, and it wasn't just because of a hard final or a midterm uh, or um, that stress response. It was just becoming more and more apparent. And so I knew that um, my health was something I couldn't ignore. And that's why, you know, I did go, um, I was a psychology major in college, which I love the mental health component and the doctor-patient relationship, which is what I studied during that time um, and health psychology. Um, but I saw out medicine because I was kind of just trying to solve um, not only my issues, but um, the, is um, the issues when it comes to health and nutrition, because I felt food directly impacted my life. And I, I wanted to see if I can solve the missing pieces. Um, I went into medical school with all my symptoms and still noticed that um, I, you know, I, I wasn't getting better. I, I knew I had to do a little bit more. And then medical school also didn't have all the answers. Um, I knew about the diagnosis. So I self-diagnosed myself with irritable bowel syndrome at that time and saw some doctors and they confirmed and they also noticed, you know, um, you know, there's a, a big connection here. Um, for me, I noticed my mood was affected, my performance, my attention when I didn't eat um, healthy. And when I say healthy, I didn't realize the flip side, not until residency at Loma Linda, that I could have this potential to not have loose stools, not have bloating and GERD just from simple foods. Um, and that was because I transformed to whole food plant-based diet. And that's when I knew um, the whole food plant-based diet was the the clinical therapeutic prescription for me that I was looking for. Um, I was offered medications before and, you know, I myself, um, when you think about irritable bowel syndrome, there's 90% of our gut and is based on nerves, neurotransmitters and hormones. And I didn't know how there was a deep relationship between the brain and the gut. And so when I was just unraveling and piecing things together, I realized that not only did I need to have a whole food plant be site, but also the exercise. I became more and more active, regular, routinely, three to four times a week. I protected my sleep. And then I realized at the same time, I needed to manage my stress better and, and 
thank, thankfully that came in the form of uh, meditation and other methods. And so um, I truly thought, you know, plant-based was the way to go. And I convinced my husband to join me too. <laughs> and he also had, um, so he has autoimmune disease with gout and other arthritis. And literally it was day and night, uh, meaning um, I told him we have to try it. And, and it just became, I would say everything that we do is based on that because we, we just want to show patients that this is um, a way to heal and, um, and it is sustainable for a lifetime. Dr. Mandela has taken a deep interest in screening her patients for mental health issues related to depression, anxiety, and PTSD in hopes of offering appropriate support. Yeah, so depression, anxiety, um, PTSD, these are just so, so important. So I screen it um, at the first visit, but every couple months as well, because I, I just have a sense when the mood is off, when they're lacking support. And I don't just blame it on the pandemic. It's yes, the pandemic has doubled and tripled the amount of anxiety and um, depression rates. But I would say um, it's it's to the point where those, at times I say that's the first thing we treat um, through a lifestyle approach is the mood. Um, and so I, I have a big passion for that. And I would say going back to the other question that you mentioned earlier, I did have a patient um, who I used to serve in uh, um, the FQHC system and the FQHC system are for people really below the poverty line who lack access and lack, lack the care. And um, it was just so rewarding to um, serve her because her A1C was near nine, between nine and 10. And she followed a whole food plant-based diet and began to exercise. She had her smoothie. She was so, so motivated. And literally it only took her um, two months to see that, um, A1C normalized from nine and 10 to eight, um, down to six and a five. And she literally, um, it was so nice that she, I maybe just two or three visits and she, she took it very, very seriously. And I think, um, for her, um, having that sense of importance, um, just, and hope, um, and how there's something that you can do at your own fingertips brought that to her attention. She was able to make changes very, very quickly. Um, but she also needed the support because she ended up getting, um, thyroid issues, autoimmune issues, um, insomnia, pain issues. Um, and I, I kind of, I really, really missed her. Um, and, and it was almost two years. And then she followed me into my own practice here in, um, in Orange County. But, and she, the thing is, she said, you're, she told me, you know, she saved almost all her dollars. It was so, so sweet. She saved so much money because she said that, uh, you know, this type of care is worth it. Um, and it, it's, I think it's just a testament, not to me, but just to the type of care that's needed um, when it comes to um, this, these complex situations, health is complex and then one pill is really not always the answer. Listen in to the rest of the interview as Dr. Mandela discusses the relationship between brain and the gut. Listen to the full episode at healthylifestylesolutions.org forward slash 161. And that's for episode 161. Coming in at number five is Michelle and Dean Yasuda. They are certified big leap coaches and Hendricks Institute Leadership and Transformation Program graduates. They are the co-founders of Michelle and Dean LLC, a company dedicated to awakening aliveness by inspiring all of us to harmonize with our purpose so that we can fully engage in our lives. 
Michelle and Dean offer relationship, life, and fitness coaching and programs designed to support you in living your best life. We frequently bring old traumas and habits into our romantic relationships that lead couples to aggravate one another. But how do we cultivate a conscious connection that is loving, fun, and thriving? Dive in as Michelle and Dean Yasuda talk about shifting our focus from blaming and criticizing to seeing our spouse as an ally. I was learning how to be a space where I hold the essence of myself and others. And I was learning all about that and really learning about what I felt about the universe. Like, what is, what is it all about? And when I met the Hendrix and when we started looking at what we entered the Hendrix world, this is Katie and Gay Hendrix through their book, Conscious Loving, which is a, a been in, I think in print for over 40 years now. And it's an amazing transformational book. And um, we were looking for more tools. So we decided when we were, once we were together as a couple, we thought we want other couples to have as good a time as we're having. And so hmm, I wonder what kind of tools we might find. And so that's what led us to becoming coaches. And it was one yes after another and recognizing mm-hmm. this was the path for us. And um, so six and a half years later, we're uh, deeply grateful for all of the tools that we've learned for our own relationship, yes. as well mm-hmm. as being able to share them with couples. And we do a lot of individual coaching as well still and really enjoy that. Michelle tells us that we have an inner wisdom that we need to tap into. The wisdom that we have inside of us doesn't just come from our thinking brain. And I think that's, I've always been a thinker and ideas and a visionary. And when I first started doing more somatic practices, I realized that there was this whole rest of me that has intelligence, that has a story to tell. And uh, I started to learn how to recognize my fear responses when, when those came up and recognize my inner yeses and nos and recognize that through the lens of body sensations, which is something I had absolutely no idea about before meeting the Hendrix. Well, I grew up, uh, you know, I'm an Asian man and we don't get in men in general, you know, if we don't get scared and we don't get angry, you know, my big one was, I don't get scared or sad. And so not even knowing that I was scared probably all the time. Mm. And so, because it was, you know, I talk about working out and why I worked out a lot was because I was anxious and I didn't know what to do with it. So I would work out and yeah, I could work out for two hours and I'd feel great. And I'd get out of gym like, oh yeah, I'm feeling good. And then 10 minutes later, all the fear and worries all come back and we're like, now what do I do? Go back working out. <laughs> and it just gets tiring after a while. So learning how to recognize my body intelligence so I can connect it with my big brain and have a whole body experience. Oh, it was magic, magical to really feel, actually just to learn how to feel my feelings. Yeah. It's a big, big change for me. So I asked both of them, what are the most common issues that most couples face? Well, one of the most common issues that comes up for couples is that we uh, all go through a phase in relationship when we first meet, when the our biology is connecting us. It's wanting us to merge with this person. 
And so there's all kinds of hormones going. There's all kinds of good feelings going. And it was designed this way so that human beings could continue to exist. This is a good thing. Um, what is new is that we're staying together. Couples are wanting to form a relationship based not just on biology, not just on creating uh, children or whatever that might be, but actually to develop relationships that are about uh, holding uh, uh, each other's highest and best and, and helping each other be creative in the world and all those amazing things that we can do when we go into our higher thinking brain. And, uh, when we're, yeah, and when we're having a good time, right? Well, what happens for our brain though is that our brain wants to regulate, uh, it automatically wants to regulate the person that we're with. They, it, it's, our brain doesn't want to work hard, right? So our brain loves habit. This is why it's so hard to create good habits when we have habits that are not working for us, right? There's, uh, our brain is actually wanting to conserve energy. And so what it starts to do is it starts to make up a picture. Like I'm looking at Dean right now and my brain made up a picture of what Dean does uh, on the daily and what is normal behavior. And so when Dean does something a little outside of that, my brain takes that in as danger. And so what begins to happen is we start to trigger each other. And what magically seems to be the case with human beings is that we resonate in towards the familiar. And the familiar is not always a good thing. Some of us have grown up in very traumatic uh, households. Um, I don't think anyone gets through childhood without trauma, regardless of what household you grew up in. Uh, we are in a community where there's things that can happen. So what happens is we get imprinted and of what relationship means, what relationship, what's normal, what is a relationship for? And, and so what starts to happen after that phase of coming together is a lot of triggering each other, a lot of scaring each other. Michelle describes the idea that we are the creators of our experiences. We must come from a place of 100% responsibility for our relationship, taking the perspective that our partner is doing for us and not against us can help us feel empowered. So when we're introducing the idea that we are the creator of our experience, so this is a different way of thinking about things. When we look at it and say, oh, well, I feel triggered because of your behavior. Well, you're doing this and, and that, and I would be okay if you weren't doing this. Mm -hmm. And one of the big transformational moves is to recognize that I actually chose you of the billions of people in the world. I chose you to be my partner. And what's that about? And um, Katie Hendricks calls that central casting. So I like to think of it as a, as a script in our play. And so I, you know, I'm going to put man who will tell me that I'm too much, too loud. Uh, this was an old script I used to run. Uh, and um, yeah, too much and too loud. So I'm going to find the man. So here, that's your role. And then, and then you might have a role for me. Yeah. I, I'm looking for a woman that um, is controlling and is going to tell me what to do all the time. 
Right. And so, and then there, and so now I've got, so I've got my role, he's got his role. And fortunately, these are roles that we didn't play with each other, but we played in the past in relationships. And by the time we got together, we had learned about ourselves and learned about these aspects of ourselves. Like for me, I, I needed to actually accept myself as someone who's vibrant and passionate, how someone else might call loud. That's, that's actually who I am. I like to say I'm, I'm an Italian from New Jersey and I, and I have a strong personality. So what I actually landed in is, Oh, I actually am. I'm available to have a relationship with someone who loves all of me. And so the amazing miraculous thing is we don't have to go to another relationship to find that we can actually create that within our relationship. Once we wake up to the fact that we're actually creating something in the first place, that if I start loving myself, Dean will pick up on that vibe and he'll see that that's what I'm available for. I'm available to be loved in in my full self. And then I'll start picking up on the vibe that Dean doesn't want to be controlled. He actually wants to, he's a whole person and I can see him as whole and I can begin to. So we start to treat each other differently because of how we're actually showing up. Move from blame and criticism (laughs) to seeing one another as allies. And uh, I recently recently had someone who was asking me, well, what does that mean? How, How do I see someone as ally when they're hurting me, when I see them as hurting me, right? It can be really confusing. And it really is a, a, a twist of, it's like a shift of, of thinking from this idea of, like you said, victim, right? Into creator energy. Hmm. If I'm creating my experience, then I, I can see you and everything you're doing as for me. And I can see that it's an opportunity for my learning. I can also learn my no and my yes. And this is something that I know we wanted to talk about today, which is our, uh, our holding back maybe and not telling our truth to each other and how damaging that can be to relationship and what it's like to be real and honor our own inner yeses and nos. And, and there are so many resources for people who don't, you know, don't feel ready or don't have the resources to have a coach. There's so many amazing resources out there, uh, to learn about how to, uh, have a conscious relationship, how to, you know, how to speak with each other, right? From a place of, um, a hundred percent responsibility. responsibility. <laughs> yeah. As you spoke about that earlier, which I'm really glad you brought that up about the hundred percent responsibility because you know, one of the uh, gay Hendrix moves is when people are, when you're doing this, pointing at pointing and blaming at someone to point that finger back at yourself. Hmm, how am I creating this, this issue? How am I keeping this going on? And so really taking that responsibility, it was huge for me because, mm. yeah, I was definitely, a, it's your fault. You, if you didn't do this, then and like, oh, when I had to do that to myself, like, how am I doing that? Mm. Oh, <laughs> how am I keeping this going? Oh, so it was really uh, eye-opening. Yeah, to, that is uh, a, a powerful move. And to I want 
uh, listeners to understand that when Dean's saying that, he means that with love and yeah. wonder. Yes. <laughs> not, And you can hear it in your voice, but mm -hmm. I wanted to make, I just wanted to be clear about that because that's something that it's not about turning that finger around and blaming ourselves mm -hmm. because that's the biggest problem. We're either pointing our finger out or pointing our yes. finger in. Our inner critic is another whole you know, that's that we could, we could talk for hours about that, right? Our inner critics. And, um, and so I just wanted to point no, that out. Great. And I Thank love you. that because yeah. the bringing that finger back towards ourselves, getting curious, mm. opening up to wonder. That's one of the things you were just asking about. Mm. How can we shift? Well, we can shift from blame to, hmm, I wonder what's really going on here. I wonder what I really want. Hmm. Hmm. And it just opens up a whole space. In their coaching, Michelle and Dean guide us in tuning into our bodies and what they are trying to communicate. By listening to our bodies, we can live in truth and integrity. And we all experience joy in different ways. I know that for me, I can feel, and in fact, uh, one of my favorite things to do is to see how I can recognize my inner yes and no by recognizing the sensations. So... What I notice is love and joy feel like a great big yes to me. And so how does that feel in my body? So just right now, take a moment to think of someone or some place that you know you love and let yourself be in the feelings of that. What does that feel like in your body when you start to think about that person or place? And I notice for me, my chest opens a little bit. I get some spaciousness. It feels like openness. And I correlate that with how I can tell when something's a yes for me. There's an opening, there's spaciousness. And now we'll just take a, a little journey to know. Think of a recent upset just for a moment or two. So think of a recent upset and notice what happens in your body when you think of that upset. Do you get any body signals? And I know for me, it feels the opposite of the, yes, I feel a constriction inside of me. I might feel a little flip in my belly, or I might actually, if I'm angry, I might have some tightness, but whatever it is, it's a contraction. Make sure to listen to the rest of the interview to learn about fear melters, which are physical exercises that we can do when fear kicks in. They discuss love scoops and breathing for self-love and self-care. To listen to the full episode, please visit healthylifestylesolutions.org forward slash 159. That's for episode 159. Coming in at number six is Dr. Cindy Geyer, who graduated with honors from the Ohio State University College of Medicine. She completed a residency in internal medicine at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York, and is triple board certified in internal medicine, integrative medicine, and lifestyle medicine. She joins the Ultra Wellness Center after 23 years at Canyon Ranch in Lenox as their medical director. Dr. Geyer has served 20 years on the faculty for the Center for Mind-Body Medicine's Food as Medicine Conference, teaching physicians and other healthcare professionals about the power and practice of lifestyle approaches for themselves and their patients. A past member of the Board of Directors for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, she currently co-chairs the Women's Health Member Interest Group. Dr. Geyer is the case series editor for the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine. 
She recently authored the chapter on sleep in the first edition of Improving Women's Health Across the Lifespan, a 2022 CRC publication in Dr. James Rippey's Lifestyle Medicine series. A clinician, author, and educator and mother, she is passionate about collaborative approaches to health and wellness. Dr. Geyer speaks about the importance of sleep. Sure. So I, I think when, when we think about sleep, um, one of the big shifts is it used to to be, as you articulated, viewed as wasted time. It's the time when we weren't getting our stuff done. We weren't being productive. And there is a shift. We now know that sleep is, is critical for mental, emotional, and physical recovery. So think of it as the time when we're paying back our sleep need for the next day. We're repairing the tissues and muscles that we've used during the day. It's the time when our brain is actually um, clearing out debris through this newly discovered glymphatic system that it may have accumulated during the day. So it's kind of cleaning house and mopping everything up and it's restoring alertness so we can come back the next day and be and feel good and be productive. So it's now no longer being viewed as wasted time, which is great. You also highlighted something else. There's a paradox that on the one hand, I'm glad we're paying attention. On the other hand, the more we worry about whether we're getting our sleep needs met, the harder it gets to meet them. Oh my gosh, I read somewhere I was supposed to get eight hours of sleep and I only got six. Oh, this is really bad. I'm going to be sleep deprived. Um, And then the final thing that you talked about too is timing of sleep also impacts us. So when we think about sleep, it's quantity, meaning the number of hours in bed or that, that you're actually sleeping. It's quality, which is not just the sleep stages that you talked about, but also how interrupted that sleep is. And the third one is um, timing. So I'm going to start with the timing piece first, because I think that sort of underpins everything else. Everything in our body runs on a circadian clock, roughly a 24-hour clock. And we're most familiar with the sleep-wake cycle as being one of those. And there is a master clock in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. I don't love the term master clock, but it's responsible for coordinating biology and behavior on that circadian rhythm. And it is exquisitely sensitive to light. So part of that is sending signals to the brain to start releasing melatonin a few hours after dark. And that signals the body and the brain that it's nighttime and that it's evening and everything sort of gets into that rest and and, and relaxation and restoration mode. Um, There are also clocks in our bodies. Our cells have clocks, our organs have clocks, and those can be impacted as well by food and by exercise, which is going to be an important piece to this. But keeping that circadian rhythm consistent, so ideally we're going to go to bed at the same time every night, get up at the same time every morning, helps keep our bodies in a nice natural rhythm. In terms of quantity of sleep, there are variables. There's there's a bell curve of normal for sleep needs, just like there is for everything else. Most adults are somewhere between seven to nine hours. So that eight hours is smack in the middle of the bell curve. But it's also important for people to know what their sleep needs are. Because if you read somewhere you're supposed to get eight and you're a seven hour person and you're constantly thinking, wait a minute, I'm only getting seven, then you might feel like you're not getting the sleep that you need when seven may be perfectly fine for you. 
Dr. Geyer discusses how sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, and female-related issues like menstrual cramps can cause sleep disturbances. To listen to the full episode, please visit HealthyLifestyleSolutions.org forward slash 168, and that's for episode 168. Finally, coming in at number seven is Dr. Michelle Tollefson, an obstetrician-gynecologist in Denver, Colorado, and a professional in the health professionals department at the Metropolitan State University of Denver. She created and oversaw the lifestyle medicine program and the wellness coaching and lifestyle medicine pathway. Dr. Tollefson founded and co-chaired the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's Women's Health Member Interest Group and the Pre-Professional Lifestyle Medicine Education Member Interest Group. She serves as the ACLM Board Secretary and serves on the Education and Member Committees. Dr. Tollefson is the Editor-in-Chief of Improving Women's Health Across the Lifespan, an international speaker, women's health consultant, leads Paving the Path to Wellness groups, and recently co-authored the Paving the Path to Wellness workbook with lead author Dr. Beth Frades and Dr. Amy Commander. She is a breast cancer survivor and thriver through the power of lifestyle medicine. Dr. Tollefson shares her breast cancer story. A year and a week after my completely normal mammogram, I went in for a screening mammogram and found a two centimeter breast cancer mass invading my chest wall. I don't have a, I don't have a lot of risk factors for breast cancer. I had no symptoms. I could not feel this mass, even though I had been doing breast exams as a gynecologist. So it was invading my chest wall. I was not able to feel it. I breastfed all three of my kids. I was eating healthy. I was exercising. I did not drink alcohol in excess. I had done all of the right things. Um, and even without a family history, I still got breast cancer. And so when I got, um, so I, I saw the, the mammogram and I knew that it was wasn't good. And while I was waiting for that, that biopsy, I was sitting in, in that, um, that radiology room just waiting. And I thought, why me? Why did I, why did I get this? And then um, after maybe doing that kind of pity party for, for a few seconds, I thought, why not me? One in eight women in the United States will be diagnosed with breast cancer during their lifetime. And I knew that if I was going to, to um, I guess, make it on the other, other side of this journey that I needed to embrace lifestyle medicine and conventional medicine to look at all of the evidence and to move forward with whatever I could to be as healthy as possible. So I'm, I um, went through 16 rounds of, of chemotherapy, lost my hair, it's back. Um, I I have had, um, I had a bilateral mastectomy and my ovaries removed and I've had five reconstructive surgeries. So I've, I've been through a lot, but I feel really good. I, um, embraced lifestyle medicine during my active treatment, used all the conventional treatment as well. And, um, and now I'm doing everything I can to advocate for, for making sure women get their screening mammograms to make sure that they, that they, um, embrace healthy lifestyle behaviors that can decrease the risk of getting breast cancer, though that we can't eliminate it altogether. I wish we could, but we can decrease that risk. And then also to, to advocate for healthy lifestyle behaviors for those of us who are breast cancer survivors. What recommendations does she make to lower the risk of breast cancer? So as far as lifestyle behaviors and how they, how they can work with us to, to hopefully decrease our risk of, of a breast cancer diagnosis. Though once again, do that screening. You can't eliminate it altogether, but eating a healthy diet. And so, um, what we recommend for, for heart health and brain health and overall health is also beneficial for decreasing the risk of, of breast cancer. So eating a, 
um, eating a lot of those whole foods. So eating fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and beans and seeds and legumes, a lot of those whole foods that are, um, that are minimally processed or unprocessed. So a lot of things that look like they look like they did when they were grown. Um, I think it's Michael Polin who says eat things that, that, um, you know, come from a plant or come from the ground, not things that were made in a plant. So trying to eat, um, a lot of those, a lot of our plant-based foods, right. And then limiting our intake of ultra processed foods. So limiting our, our candy and chips and all those, those other things that can often contribute to excessive weight postmenopausal breast cancer, um, the risk goes up with increasing, um, with, with increasing weight with, with obesity. And so we want people to be at, at a healthy weight that decreases the risk as well. And for postmenopausal breast cancer, so eating, eating that healthy diet, um, limiting or avoiding ultra processed foods, um, red meat, a limiting or, um, avoiding hopefully processed meat is important as well. Um, for women, breastfeeding is, is beneficial. So for those, um, of you who are pregnant or who are going to have a baby, if you're able to breastfeed, that that decreases your risk as well. Um, also engaging in regular physical activity is beneficial. So if you can, can exercise, um, you know, the recommendation is about 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise for women, um, spread throughout the week. And so, you know, if you can do 20 to 30 minutes of, of physical activity a day, that's beneficial as well. So those are some of the, the key, um, the key behaviors. And I would recommend anybody who wants to know more about that to visit the American Institute for Cancer Research, the AICR, um, to visit their website. They are an amazing group that looks at a lot of literature. There's a lot of literature out there on breast cancer. Dr. Tollefson wraps up our interview by speaking about the breast cancer survivorship program she developed to offer continued support for survivors. To listen to the full episode, please visit healthylifestylesolutions.org forward slash 166. And that's for episode 166. Well, there you have it, friends. Seven episodes that I think that you will enjoy. They are the most popular on my podcast. They reflect the content that I want to highlight. Lifestyle medicine is about doing the things that you have control over. My podcast focuses on a plant forward diet, daily moving, finding ways to manage stress, getting adequate sleep, and building healthy relationships. Make sure to subscribe to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I will return next week with more healthy tips. And stay tuned because in addition to my solo episode, I have a bonus episode next week along with our regular Tuesday episode. So I think that you will find these super beneficial. As always, thank you.